0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. So last night I watched um, the movie The Post. Um, If I'm being honest, I watched like half of it because I fell asleep. I watched it for like the fourth or fifth time. Um... I like movies that have to do with history, uh, the telling of stories. Um, This movie is about how the press um, got a hold of the fact that our government knew a lot of things about the Vietnam War that they chose to hide. Um, If you were alive back then, or you've studied history, or you know anything about Vietnam, you know that there were um, a few people... In America, that were a little opposed to the war. Um, in reality, any war that we fight ever, there are going to be people op- opposed to it. But the the thing here in America that happened, especially after the fact, was many, many people were incensed with our government because they had information, um, they knew the truth. And they chose to keep it and hide it from the American people so we could keep following down the path of this agenda that they had. And essentially what they did was they suppressed the truth. They knew we couldn't really ultimately ever win this war. And when you understand that almost 60,000 American soldiers lost their lives in Vietnam, that's a big deal. This morning in Paul's letter to the Romans, um, Paul's going to turn a corner. And up to this point, if you've been with us uh, in Romans, uh, it's been very affirming. It's been very warm. This letter has been very encouraging. Um, It's going to change a little bit today. And the reason is because there's a crisis and Paul feels compelled to rip the veil off and expose the crisis to the people he's writing to. There's a knowledge crisis going on. And it's not that um, they, there's crucial information or something that the people were missing or they didn't have um, or that needed to be shared. The, the problem was that they actually did have the information. They did know the truth and they chose to suppress it. They chose to push it aside. You're going to see in a few minutes here, Paul says the unrighteous have seen and heard the evidence, but it's not the evidence that they want. And so what the unrighteous do is they push it away and bury it. And Paul says, here is the result. Take a look with me, if you will, in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Romans 1.18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's important to connect this section of the letter with the last section of the letter. And the reason why that's important is that it's imperative that we understand the gospel of God in light of the wrath of God and the sin of man. Let me repeat that. We have to understand um, the righteousness of God, the gospel um, in, in, in connection to, in light of, the wrath of God, and we have to understand it in relationship to the sin of man. If you start in verse 16, where we were last week, and you move through verse 20, what you see is this pattern, this path that Paul walks. In verse 16, he talks about the power of God, um, which is revealed, is for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, he moves to the righteousness of God, which has been revealed from faith, in faith, from beginning to end. Well, now all of a sudden, Paul turns the steering wheel so fast that our heads slam into the window. And he moves to talking about the wrath of God, and he's about to move into the power of God, the glory of God. So walk backwards with this, and what you see Paul essentially saying is the glory of God is rejected. And so because of this, the wrath of God is revealed. And because the wrath of God is revealed, you and I are in desperate need of the righteousness of God being made available to us because it's not available to us on our own. We can't earn it or deserve it. Why? Because we're the ones who have brought about the wrath in the first place. But that righteousness that we need, thank you, Lord, it has been made extended and available to us because of what God has done through his power and through his Son, on the cross. So, the wrath of God. When we hear that, you and I we don't use the word wrath very often. And so it probably conjures up some very like harsh and severe thoughts. We need to understand what does the Bible mean by the wrath of God? Well, first of all, know this. The wrath of God is not equal to or congruent with the anger of men. They are not the same. In the New Testament, you find two different words that are translated anger, and it's important to know the distinction. One of those words is the word thumos. And that word, we get words like thermometer from it. What does a thermometer do? A thermometer tells you the temperature. How hot is it in here in the room? Well, it also, uh, we get the word thermos. What does a thermos do? Well, if it's a good thermos, uh, it may keep your hot soup hot or your cold drink cold. So when we understand thumos, thumos, thumos is this red, hot, impulsive, passionate anger. There's no control over thumos. Thumos rages. Well, the other word in the New Testament is the word orge. Orge. And what orge is, is a, a settled or abiding condition. It's very controlled, it's thought out, it's deliberate. When you hear those two definitions, I probably don't need to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyways man's anger, thumos. God's anger is orge. We have to reckon with this. Our anger, like it or not, is almost always impulsive, reactionary, emotionally driven. I could go on. God's anger, the wrath of God, is always perfect, settled, controlled, deliberate. And here's why. The wrath of God is always parallel to the righteousness of God. The wrath of God cannot be disconnected from or separated from the righteousness of God. And so God's anger is always righteous. And while you and I might make the argument that once in a blue moon, and yes, I realize that every once in a while, you and I experience what we might label righteous indignation, for the most part, um, our anger is impulsive and reactionary, and it's just driven from our emotions. Now, asterisk here, In regards to the wrath of God, important to to point this out, the alternative to the wrath of God is not love. It's not. The alternative to the wrath of God would be neutrality, to do nothing. Moreover, the alternative would be apathy, not only to not do anything, but to not care. And we know full well that God is not neutral or apathetic, especially when it comes to sin. So the wrath of God is always parallel to the righteousness of God. But now understand this, the wrath of God also offends the hearts of the unrighteous. It just works that way. The whole idea um, that we even deserve something other than the best, offends the unrighteous. Let me give you one of about 10 million examples. Um, author back in the last century, Bertrand Russell. Okay? Um, if you want to know where Bertrand Russell stood on faith and things of this nature, the title of one of his books is Why I'm Not a Christian. Okay, So he's laying it out there. The number one thing that Russell has against Christianity is he says this, Jesus Christ loses all credibility when he exposes the fact that he believes in hell. Why does Russell care about that? Well, because the whole idea that there is the idea of hell. That we deserve something other than the best. The fact is, the unrighteous don't want to hear that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. Those of us who have come to a place of brokenness over our sin realize, I don't deserve anything but hell, but thank you, God, that you have made salvation available. All of that to say, the idea of God's wrath. And judgment has always been offensive. This is absolutely nothing new. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Look at verse nineteen. For what God for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. for his invisible attributes. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The wrath of God is a theological concept, but it is also a biblical principle that we need to understand. So is general revelation. General revelation is the ability that God has given to all people to know and see His power, His deity, His presence, His glory in creation. That you and I, God has made it known through His creation that there is a creator. In Psalm chapter 8, David begins Psalm 8 by proclaiming, When I lift up my eyes to the heavens, God... What is man that you even think of him? And remember, King David didn't have NASA. Okay, I know, mind-blowing. Didn't have the Hubble telescope. King David had these two eyeballs in his head to look up, and just what he could see with his eyes told him, I am infinitesimally small. God, you are so big... Who am I that you would even give thought to my being here? In Psalm 19, it begins, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies testify to his handiwork. God has made it plain through his creation. There is no way on earth this just all popped up. God has put his fingerprints on all of it. Think about all that we can lay just our eyes on. The heavens, uh, the the universe, the mountains, the canyons. How about a giraffe, for crying out loud? What is that? that? That didn't just happen. A rhinoceros. How about when we look at one another? How about the human body? The idea that this evolved. Give me a break. Let's move inside the human body. We just talked about all these things that we can see. How about the thing that you see with? You want something to do this afternoon? Because, you know, guys, football's over, except for that game next week, where we're all going to get together and cheer against Tom Brady. So today you need something to do. Get on Google and just Google the human eye. Study the human eye for 15 to 20 minutes. It will blow your mind. What all is happening between your eye and your brain and and all of these things going on uh, in nanoseconds time. The point is God has placed such incredible design in front of us to reveal his presence and his glory. God says, I have revealed myself. And so men are without excuse. There's no excuse. No one anywhere can look at this world and think this just got here. You you can't sleep on that. And yet, so many are found in unbelief. And so because of this, because people see the truth and they reject it, God's wrath is being revealed how is this taking place? Verse 24. Remember in verse 23, it says, They exchanged the glory of God. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. How is God's wrath being revealed? Paul says it in four words, and he repeats himself two more times. God gave them up. God handed them over. Um, It's not by the intervening of God. It is actually by God choosing not to intervene by letting men and women go their own way. God says, I'm going to abandon the stubborn sinner over to their own self-centeredness. Friends, when we live for ourselves, when we uh, live and, and move and work to honor ourselves, when we worship the creature rather than the creator, this is what is called idolatry. What's the outcome of that? I mean, what's the result of us worshiping something or someone other than God? John Stott, who I quoted last week, I'm quoting here again this morning, and I will probably quote again from here. John Stott says, The history of the world confirms that idolatry tends to immorality. What Stott is saying is when we live... For ourselves, when we worship ourselves, when we make ourselves God, this is idolatry. And idolatry always leads to immorality. And now please hear this. Immorality is always going to lead to a false view of sex and sexuality. Always. Verse 26. Remember... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. I want to stop right here for a second. And again encourage you, if, if, if you're crazy enough to do this, if you've got a pen or a highlighter, I would encourage you to underline, circle, highlight, all of the above, those three words right there in your Bible, contrary to nature, because there is such a thing that God has said through creation, I have made it visibly and evidently clear what my intent and my will is. But there are those who will reject it. The state of California is currently saying we're not gonna have the pronouns he and she. We've got like 15 different possible genders. I really have nothing else to say without it just being derogatory. How mind numbing. Is that? God's made it visibly clear. There is such a thing as contrary to nature. Paul goes on. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Make absolutely no mistake, in the last four verses... Paul has called out both homosexual and heterosexual sin. However, he emphasizes and keys in on homosexuality here with laser focus. Why does he do this? He does it plain and simple because homosexuality is so obviously unnatural when looking at God's design and looking at general revelation. God has made it plain to them. So they are without excuse. Homosexuality is the ultimate manifestation of rejecting God's order, God's design, and God's glory. Go back with me for a moment to the beginning. And I mean the real beginning, Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 it says so God created man in his own image and I want you to remember that phrase because we're going to come back to it in a second God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and he blessed them and he said be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth As a result of this, chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. First of all, okay, so God has made known since the creation of the world, this is my design, a man and a woman, in covenant marriage and you will notice that one of the goals of that covenant marriage is to procreate so that other men and women are born and that that can continue and you will also notice that that biological anatomical chemical process that allows all of that to even occur is not possible with a man and a man or a woman and a woman God has made it plain. This is my design. But God says something even more powerful here in Genesis chapter 1. This is my image. What does he mean by that? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I think at times people have a tendency when you read Paul, he wrote half the New Testament You've got to come up with something to maybe find against Paul, slander him. Paul's just writing these things to advance his agenda. Well, anytime Paul says anything about marriage or sexuality, we must remember that this is a single celibate man. He's got nothing to gain from saying anything about marriage or sex or husbands and wives. He is giving us this because the Holy Spirit has ordained him to tell us this. Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But now listen to verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let me tell you what did not happen. God did not send his son and Jesus come and live his life and die on the cross, rise from the dead, ascend back to the father and God go, wait a minute. You know what? I just realized, Jesus, your relationship with the church, it kind of parallels a husband's relationship to his wife. Let's tell Paul to tell everybody. That's not how it went down. God created marriage to be this beautiful, meaningful representation of Jesus Christ and his bride, not the other way around. We get to partake in marriage because God intended from the very beginning for it to be a reflection of him and his relationship to us. From the beginning... Manhood and womanhood existed to represent God's relationship to his people and Christ's relationship to his bride, okay, the church. Um, In all of the unfolding of this, the man represents God or Christ and is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, the woman represents God's people for the church and sexual union within that covenant of marriage represents this pure undefiled worship from the heart that is God's means for the beauty of worship to be dramatized in the right ordering of our sexual lives John Piper preached a sermon on this almost 20 years ago and I want to read a little excerpt from it of what he says in response to this because you and I know that something has happened and that's that's not taking place now. He says this, but instead we have exchanged the glory of God for images, especially of ourselves. The beauty of heart worship has been destroyed. Therefore, in judgment, God decrees that this disordering of our relationship to him be dramatized in the disordering of our sexual relations with each other. And since the right ordering of our relationship to God in heart worship was dramatized, it was portrayed by heterosexual union in the covenant of marriage, the disordering of our relationship to God is dramatized by the breakdown of of that heterosexual union. He goes on. Homosexuality is the most vivid form of that breakdown. God and man in covenant worship are represented by male and female in covenant sexual union. Therefore, when man turns from God to images of himself, God hands us over to what we have chosen and dramatizes it by male and female turning to images of themselves for sexual union, namely their own sex. Homosexuality is the judgment of God dramatizing the exchange of the glory of God for images of ourselves. And I want to add to this, not take away from it. I just want to add to what Piper says here by saying that I believe we can make this assertion, it's possible that pornography is even more vile and more devastating even than what we've just read. Because the fact of the matter is there is sub-zero love involved when it comes to porn. All that happens through pornography is that the human body becomes a pagan idol for sexual worship. Sounds kind of bad when you say it that way, doesn't it? Because that's what it is. In thinking about all that Paul has said here in, in sort of linear terms, let's go back to the beginning. He begins with God's revelation. Um, God has made himself known through the natural, through the general, what we talked about, through creation. Okay, Um, and general revelation is what we will call truth revealed. God has made it known that there is a creator and that there is a design. Again, you can look at it cosmologically. You can look at things anatomically, biologically. God has made it plain. But very, very often there's God's revelation, but then you have man's suppression. And when man suppresses the truth, it begins by, you know, the truth, it weighs in on you. Um, The truth, it presses in and and it starts with us kind of saying, oh, this is going to crush me. But but as men and women, we eventually get our footing and we stop trying to reject it and we push it back. See, sometimes you get home with something that you bought and you go, I really don't want this bam, you reject it. But then the next day, you know what you do? You get in your car and you take it back and you go, I don't want this. You want a refund? No, I want to exchange it for something else. That's what we do with the truth. I don't want to hear that. You can have it back. I want something else. It is this constant, continual, active, striving against the truth. God's revelation, man's suppression, and man's suppression of the truth ultimately leads to man's perversion of the truth. And this is idolatry. Man, this at this point, this is when I determine, I want to be God, I want to determine what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. And what Paul has explained to us here is is that when this occurs God gives him up. God finally says if that's what you want to think, if that's the way that you want to live, go ahead. God gave them up. God leaves him or her to his or her own devices. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. You'll notice here, God gave them up to the lust in their hearts. God gave them up to the passions of their bodies. And now God gives them up to the twistedness of their own mind. God gave them up to a debased Mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Haughty, prideful, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And I just thought I'd point this out to you here, students, kids. Paul slaps disobedient to parents in between inventors of evil and foolish. Just thought I'd point that out. (laughs) Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul says here, the height, the pinnacle, if you want to see the height of our depravity, it's when we stand by and boastfully applaud or approve of someone else's sin. When you and I choose to call what God calls sin something other than that, that is the height of us rejecting him. Finding ourselves encouraging or supporting or applauding or approving of someone else's sin. And see, to make sure we understand here that Paul is not just isolating homosexuality in what he's saying, he now moves into this list of basically all unrighteousness. So in case you Romans or you Huntsvillians were reading this and thinking, oh, I'm just picking on people who struggle with homosexuality, let me tell you, think again. Anyone who walks and lives in this deception while knowing the truth is rejecting the glory of God. And because of this, the wrath of God is being revealed. And I will also tell you that the language used here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 is not future tense. It's the aorist tense. It was being revealed, it is being revealed, and it will be revealed. None are exempt, left to our own. None of us. Paul says we are all On our own, we are doomed. We are haters of God. We are inventors of evil. None of us are pure and holy and righteous. We all deserve the wrath of God. But thankfully, the righteousness of God is available to us in Christ. Again, we have to understand the wrath of God in light of the gospel. That yes, this is what we all deserve. And yet God has said, I have made a way. I want to close by just saying a couple of other things. And the first one is not planned. um, Because when I started writing this sermon, um, the events of last week had not happened yet. What's happening in New York City, in terms of, Allowing abortion is absolutely unfathomable to me. And if you don't think that the removal of a child from a mother's womb is contrary to nature, I don't know what is. And we need to pray that God intervene. Homosexuality is not a sickness. It's not a genetic trait. Neither is adultery. It's sin. Plain and simple. But there is a remedy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Anybody in here righteous on your own? Nope, nobody. Just save you raising your hand. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. Anyone who walks in sexual immorality walks and lives there. Anyone. Um, Nor idolaters. Anyone who worships and pursues and elevates anything as God other than God nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul said in those two verses right there says, we're all in big trouble. And then verse 11 starts with, and such were some of you. We're not going to change what Paul says here, but you could just go ahead and say, such were all of you. But now one of the most important buts in the whole Bible. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Of our God. There is a remedy. And it's Jesus. Friends. Lust is not a communicable disease. There are things that over the course of my lifetime. Um, I was taught. You're a guy. It's just natural. That, that the, the society. That culture says. You know every once in a while. We just need to pleasure ourselves. No. No, you don't. There's a remedy for that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Paul says, right after he has laid out the fruits of the Spirit... Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Friends, there are passions and desires within us that are not from God. They are fueled by the lust of our flesh. And Paul says that you and I, because we now have the Spirit of God, have to put those things to death. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. A little over a year ago, um, we talked about this on a Sunday morning. A very, very um, prominent Christian couple um, came forward in an article and ...revealed that after a whole lot of study and counsel, they had changed their mind about what they believed the Bible said about homosexuality. And I will tell you as I went back and read through a lot of this again, um, what I saw was that everything that they laid out actually exposed the real root issue... The real issue is that what happens is we change our minds about what we want the Bible to say. We very often change our minds about what we want to be the truth. Um, but the fact that we change our mind does not mean that God changes his. Um, the word of God is clear. God has made it plain to us. We are without excuse. So I close this morning by reading to you, with you, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we ask you through your Spirit to give us hearts like David, as David comes before you and says, search me, God, know my heart, test me, Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us the brokenness and the desire to come before you and say, Lord, if there's anything in my life, if there's anything in my life, Lord, that you call sin and I'm calling it something different. Bring me to a place of repentance today, Lord. Lord, break our hearts with the things that break yours. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come so that we might be reconciled back to the father so that we might walk in your spirit and we might live in victory over sin that we might no longer fear death. Lord, you have come to bring us from darkness to light that You've come to bring us from death to life. and We pray that we would walk in that light. This morning we have the opportunity to take communion. This is for anyone who has publicly put their faith and trust in Christ. as we take the bread and the cup, we recognize and we remember that Jesus gave his life and shed his blood so that we might have life. But I encourage you this morning to know, to remember, to reflect on that Jesus saved us to send us. And so when we take that bread and that cup, we remember the great gift that we have been given of new life, of salvation. But that Christ now says, go and make disciples. I am sending you out into a very, very lost and broken world to love those who are in desperate need of the hope that you have. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be honored and exalted and lifted up as we continue to worship you. There are communion tables all around the room. Uh, We invite you to come. Thanks for listening to The Brook.